We're going to read Song of Songs, chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 6, and then till 5-1. Right, here we go. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it, fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They are all skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy gold, its cushions are purple. It was decorated with love by the, women, by the young women of Jerusalem. Young woman. Come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. Young man, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon, your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hamon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna with nard, nard with saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. Awake, north wind, rise up, south wind, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love, taste its finest fruits. Young man, I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. Young women of Jerusalem. Oh, lover and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. Well, that's quite a Bible reading to read for the first time, Jet. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> because we are talking about sex, and that's what we are looking at with the second talk tonight. True sex is honourable. And uh, as we come to this, would you please uh, avail yourself of the handout? There are little blanks there for you to fill in, and that'll make it even easier for you to follow along. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. 
We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for your word and we thank you that in it we understand who you are and how you've made us and how you want us to live. And so we pray now that as we come to it that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and give us a deeper understanding of this great, wonderful gift of sex. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that a man falls in love through his eyes, but a woman through her ears. You see, words have a power to reveal melted hearts and broken hearts, to express the highs of love and the lows of love. And a person can say in one verse what it takes a whole page to write in prose. You can convey in one rhyming couplet what a dozen roses can't even express, and it's a lot cheaper. It seems that love songs have been around ever since Adam and Eve, and the most famous love song of all is right here in the Song of Songs in the Bible. Even though it was written about 3,000 years ago in classical Hebrew, its sentiment seems to sort of translate beautifully and transcend beautifully into our modern culture. The pictures that it paints with words are stunning. It's a poem that traces the path from attraction through to consummation, from that first flutter of the heart right through to the satisfying piece of unity and consummation. The words are emotional, they're personal, they're vivid, they're explicit. They convey the feelings of a man and a woman who are overcome with love for each other. And we witness the candid and the intimate outpourings of these two people who experience a love that changes their life. Today we're going to focus mainly on the fourth chapter of Song of Songs. And it's part of a dream that the woman has about her wedding night. Uh, These are the words that her husband-to-be has spoken to her. And he addresses this woman with extravagant praise. And these are not only extravagant words, they're they're also a a little bit raunchy. These words are extravagant and sexual, you may have noticed. And this is why, as I said last week, the early Christians thought that this book of the Bible, these words here, must have been talking mainly about something spiritual because surely it couldn't be talking about sex because it's in the Bible. And so they interpreted them to be about the relationship of Jesus to the church. And whilst there's some warrant in that to some degree, really, it's basically a book about love. It's a book about sex. It's a book about marriage. Have a look again at the first seven verses of chapter 4. Hear these words of passion. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. They are beautiful words. Your teeth are white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two thorns, thin, uh, twin thorns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee. I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. 
This is kind of almost over the top. It's kind of blushing sort of beauty, isn't it? Describing every bit of her body in this kind of way. But these are the words of a man who is in love, is captivated by the apple of his eye. Every part of her body to him is beautiful and flawless. But it's not even just her natural features that he talks about. It's also her jewellery and her perfume. All his senses are overcome with her beauty. And he puts his feelings into extravagant words, comparing her to beautiful aspects of nature, fruit, wildlife, landscapes. The man puts his feelings into extravagant words. Extravagant words. Now, when was the last time you spoke to the person you love like that? When was the last time you spoke like that, maybe even in poetry or something like it, to your husband or your wife? Or maybe even to your boyfriend or girlfriend, although perhaps bearing in mind where the relationship is at that point. Maybe if you've just started going out with someone or maybe you're engaged or about to become engaged, this feeling of love might be really strong. Uh, it may be that you do tell your girlfriend that her eyes are like doves or her boyfriend that your arms are rods of gold. Maybe that's an expression that you've thought about using or have already. But what if you've been married for quite some time and it may be that, that some of the magic seems to have gone? I wonder if you can think of the last time you spoke to your spouse using these sorts of words, this extravagant praise, this genuine and spontaneous affection. It's an important part of marriage. Love is obviously about sacrifice, but it's also about feeling. God made these feelings of love and then to be appreciated and to be celebrated. They may not come naturally to you, but maybe they are especially important to your spouse. And so if that is the case, then it might be necessary for you to serve them by speaking words of affection that may not come as naturally to you. And they will thank you for it. And within this chapter of the Song of Songs, the man also speaks of his own feelings. So he's spoken all about her and what she looks like and the stuff she's wearing and things like that. Now he talks about his own feelings, the effect of the love on him. He talks about this in verses 9 to 11, chapter 4. He says, you've captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold my heart hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me. This is how he feels. My treasure, my bride, your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue, your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. He's talking about how he feels. And sometimes hard to talk about how we feel with that kind of honesty. But he does, and he says that she's stolen his heart. He dominates her she dominates his emotions and has sent him out of control. It's beyond anything that even a glass or two of fine wine can conjure. The effect of her scent is beyond anything he can compare. You know, our world is captivated with the idea of falling in love. It worships that feeling of falling in love. And in fact, I think that's what most people think love is really about. It's about that feeling. 
that gushy feeling in your heart. That is what love is. When people say they've lost the love in their marriage or they want to have more love in their marriage, they're talking about that. Our world worships that feeling. But this loving feeling is actually said to be at the heart of love. And the Song of Songs shows us in the Bible that there's nothing wrong with that loving feeling. It is a beautiful gift of God. This feeling of love is a gift from God to enjoy. So I think that this means that it's okay to listen to your heart when it comes to choosing your marriage partner. Uh, It's not the kind of thing that you should determine on a spreadsheet, I think. It's not the sort of thing you can sort of work out with a compatibility score, I don't think. But the Bible is pretty clear. God speaks to us as the appropriate partner for a Christian. See, God desires that Christian men marry Christian women and vice versa. And we're also told not to marry people of the same sex and we're not to marry people who are already married. And the laws of our land also tell us not to marry someone who's a child or someone who's closely related. But other than this, we really are at liberty within reason to marry anyone. So how do we choose that person? Well, like always, we want to pray for wisdom and then make a choice and then thank God for guiding us. It's kind of like this. We should pray, choose and be thankful for the guidance. Your choice will be God's choice. And you can be sure that you've acted within his will. You see, this is a classic test case in guidance. We desperately want to know if so-and-so is Mr. or Mrs. Right. But at the end of the day, the only concrete advice we've got in the Bible is that we are told who we should and should not marry, and not necessarily specifics of names and so on. Because at the end of the day, whoever you wake up to next day after your wedding as your bride or groom that is the person god destined for you to marry it's happened and so you might say does that mean we could marry anyone who is a single opposite sex christian well in a sense yes but there's something about the song of songs that also shows us that there is merit to that feeling and so if there's a particular person who makes your heart flutter then maybe that attraction might be a good way to help narrow the field as to who you might marry. See, I think God's given us that special spark of attraction. And so within the boundary of God's clear wisdom, it may be that the person that you marry is also the person that you find attractive. Although there is something to be said for arranged marriages too, which is an interesting thought to explore at another time. Well, we've read in the Bible that the man in this poem finds the woman's appearance beautiful. He finds... Her emotional response, beautiful. But there's something else he finds beautiful. And that is he finds her moral qualities beautiful. Verse 12, he says, You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Basically, when he talks about her being this private garden, this locked garden, he's describing her virginity. It seems here that this verse is talking about how she has kept herself for him. She's kept her garden locked for her future husband. And the man finds this attractive. He finds her virginity attractive. He loves her because she has waited. 
The Bible tells us that when a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, they become united. They become one flesh. See, there's something about sex that is far more than just physical. Uh, Sex is far more than being just emotional too. There is a spiritual act to sex. There's a spiritual aspect to sex. Many people don't agree with this. And I think the modern epidemic of pornography is based on the idea that sex is just a physical thing. And whilst certain parts of the body will cause some people to be more aroused than other bits, many people just see the body as nothing more than just flesh. And so there's no real problem, they say, with taking photos of private parts and displaying them to anyone who wants to look. And in this lies one of the biggest problems of pornography. It assumes that there's no spiritual aspect to sex. It shows an attitude that thinks that sex is just a physical, primal drive. And so viewing sexually explicit images just provides fuel for our physical needs. And you don't have to worry about all that baggage that comes from a real sexual experience, they say. But this is not the way that God made sex. And this is one of the many reasons why Christians should flee pornography, should resist porn. I've mentioned this before as an answer to a question that was asked of me a while ago. But there is a website that you should look at and it's made by the Sydney Anglican Diocese and it's called resistporn.org, resistporn.org. And it has many really useful resources on this topic. And there are four in particular that it mentions that I just want to briefly summarise. The first is it says that porn harms the user. It harms the user. It harms the user by causing a hyper-arousal amongst those who are viewing it, which means that it's actually harder to be satisfied by normal sex with your spouse or your future spouse. It also leads to distorted views of people, in particular the opposite sex. And it leads people to see others as objects rather than people. And it can lead to increased sexual aggression as well, which can lead to domestic violence and other significant problems. This can lead to mental health issues like depression, reduced self-esteem and sexual insecurity and a whole lot of the other issues that face people with addictions. Secondly, porn harms relationships. It places pressure on people to look or act in a certain way. And it can lead to dishonesty and mistrust and insecurity in relationships and can even lead to adultery. Next, porn harms society. It harms society. You may not have realised this, but I've read that the pornography performers are generally exploited and disadvantaged. And they display higher rates of depression and anxiety and child sexual abuse and poverty and substance abuse. And they often talk about needing to do things against their will. And prostitution is often linked very closely with the pornography industry. And this widespread use of pornography also changes the way that society more generally understands sexuality. And it's seen, I think, in the way that the media has now over-sexualised things even more than when I, far more, I think, than when I was growing up. And finally, porn harms us spiritually. 
See, as the users of porn are causing the harm to themselves and others that I've already mentioned, it also leads Christians to feel that they have compromised their view of sexuality and it clashes with the Bible and it disobeys God's word. And as porn users feel this, who are Christians, they feel guilt and hypocrisy and it can even lead to a major crisis of faith that can lead people away from God. These are four brief reasons that we should resist porn. And I want to encourage you to visit resistporn.org and have a look at it. You may not be affected by porn at all, but maybe there are people close to you who are. And this helps you understand. But you need it with all of this to remember that God is full of grace and mercy. And he will forgive you and lead you through this struggle if you turn to him in repentance and faith. Uh, you see, if you need help from a trusted Christian, then I'm happy to talk to you, uh, to the men here, if you'd like to confidentially chat about things. And I'm sure that Mandy and Rain and Leslie and other women would be happy to talk to the women here if there's an issue for you facing things related directly or indirectly to this. You know, I remember a few years ago hearing about a movie that was fairly mainstream that had made headlines because the leading lady... Kerry Fox had real sex on screen with her co-star. Uh, this movie called Intimacy, that I never saw, uh, in this, the sex in it is real. There's no body double, no special effects, just real sex. And she was interviewed by the media on this and asked what her partner thought about her explicit role. And she said, he was very supportive all the way through it. He didn't like the fact that I spent so much of the time naked but I think it's definitely made our relationship stronger. Just another day at the office. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? And this makes sense to some extent if sex is just a physical thing and nothing more. But God tells us that when a couple have sex, they are united. They become one flesh. And this is why the man in the Song of Songs finds her virginity so attractive, so beautiful. He knows that she saved herself for him so that they can be truly united to each other. She's kept herself pure for him. And this goes against nearly everything that our world teaches about sex, doesn't it? The world teaches that sex is just another physical pursuit. Get your thrills from bungee jumping or, or get your thrills from sex. It's just another physical thing. That's all it is. But the word of God, from God, who created sex says that sex is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. Now, as I've mentioned this stuff, I expect you to have a whole range of different feelings. Uh, it may be that you feel a resentment towards God, that he'd hold back the excitement of sex until your wedding night. Maybe you're uh, not yet married or far away from that moment. You're thinking, well, all my friends are talking about having sex or whatever, and I can't, and I just feel like God is is taking this good thing and not letting me have it. If you think that's the case, then you need to know that the best thing about sex is enjoying it as God intended. It's an act of mutual self-giving and it's designed for use within the bounds of a husband and wife relationship. Last week I compared it to IKEA furniture. Remember I said that you can try and assemble all that stuff without instructions if you like. Good luck with that. But the bookshelves will wobble and you'll end up with all these leftover parts. 
What you need when you buy a flat pack from Ikea is the instructions and you need to keep to them and then you will get pleasure. Pleasure from having furniture that works and no leftover parts. And so when God talks about how it is that sex should work, it's not a restriction, it's a relief. We can know how he designed it. And as we submit to his loving rule, he blesses us by enjoying the good gift of sex in the way he's always intended. We enjoy having pure water that he provides. You see, our world is thirsty for that fulfilment, but sadly it quenches its thirst from the dirty water of a toilet. We get the fresh water of Jesus, which fulfills us completely. But as we consider all of this, uh, it may well be that you yourself have acted in such a way where you have lost your virginity outside marriage. And you think, oh, what do I do with all this? I've misused sex and I've disobeyed God and I feel pretty cut up about that. Well, if you have lost your virginity outside marriage or acted in this kind of way, God will forgive you if you ask. Don't, be, don't have sex the thing that means I can never come to God and never speak to him again. God is there. He forgives. And if this has not affected you directly, then maybe this is a word you can have to a trusted friend. But in all of this, there's a perpetual question. How far can we go? It's an interesting question. It's a little bit like saying, how fast can you drive past a speed camera before it takes your photo? You know, what's the speed you can go? Really, at the end of the day, how far should I go is the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The right question is, how can I best serve my Christian brother or sister and maintain his or her purity? This should be the motivation. We should preserve our bodies for our future spouses. And you should preserve the body of your current boy or girlfriend for their future spouse too. So I'm not going to give you a definitive answer of how far a person should go before they are married. But if your acts of intimacy with your girlfriend or boyfriend are more like scaled-down versions of sex, then you need to wonder if it's really keeping you and them for their future spouse. If you're touching areas of your boy or girlfriend that are normally concealed by swimmers, it seems to me to be getting pretty close to the sexual act. And that is not going to help keep your moral beauty or the moral beauty of your spouse or that person for their future spouse if you do not get to the point where you finally marry them. And even if you've gone too far in your relationship with the person you're with who's not your partner, not your, ma your married spouse, then there's time to hit the brakes, get in a reverse, and to seek change from God. And as I've said already, and I'll say it again, if you need help and you've sinned in this area, or some area like this, ask a trusted Christian friend or leader to be with you through this sin and they can hold your hand as you seek forgiveness from God and aim to repair the broken and damaged relationships in your life. Well, that was fairly heavy, wasn't it? Well, the gears changed just a little bit now. Now we have in chapter 4 verse 8 the invitation of the man towards the girl. He says... Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. 
come down from Mount Amarna, from the peaks of Samir and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. And then in verse 16, the woman invites the man to come to her. He says, she says in verse 16, Awake, north wind, rise up, south wind, blow on my garden, spread its fragrance all around, come into your garden, my love, taste its finest fruits. That's an invitation to leave behind the past and to come into the new relationship. And they invite the person to come and they express their deep personal needs for each other. They're showing their dependence on each other. They're saying to the other person that they have deep personal needs that only the other person can satisfy. And in fact, they can only be fulfilled as they give themselves to that other person, as they, they surrender to them, as they make themselves vulnerable. Because that's what we see here. They show vulnerability. And then in the next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, in this dream, they achieve union. Verse 1, I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices, eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. Her locked garden is opened and he's entered. He's enjoyed all aspects of her beauty and he's been satisfied in every way. And you wonder what has led them to the point where they would be vulnerable like this. How would they, what would motivate them to be open to this other person in this way? How? It's because they know they are loved and they know they can trust the other person. And how do they know that? Well, I take it that they know that because they trust their spouse. And they trust their spouse because of abundant praise, of abundant praise. Verses and verses of wonderful praise. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5 from last week, uh, in 5 and 6, we, we saw an interesting little reflection by the woman on her beauty and how she feels about it. She said, I'm dark, but I'm beautiful. O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedah, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyard so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. She's dark because she's had to work under the sun. She's got burnt skin because she failed to care for herself and yet she knows she's beautiful. She says, I'm dark, but I'm beautiful. How does she know that? It's not from her brothers. They've been pretty rough with her. It's from her man. The praise from him is overwhelming. It is abundant praise. And all through chapters 1 and 2, we read of how beautiful he finds her, how lovely she is to him. And this praise has formed her confidence. The praise has formed her confidence. She knows there's a man who loves her for who she is, who finds beauty in her whole being. You know, it's a wonderful antidote to the kind of insecurity that is found amongst women and men in our world. We see photoshopped images everywhere. You know, there's whole websites devoted to bad Photoshop. Photoshop fail and they're quite funny when people have tried very hard to make something not so pretty look very pretty and end up adding too many fingers and things like that to hands. But you see, it's not just the glossy brochures and things. It's the Instagram feeds. It's the constant pressure to have a gym body 
and the latest clothing. And all these things we see just make us feel insecure. And this is why we need to listen carefully to the praise that people close to us give us. You see, if someone you love and trust thinks you're beautiful, then you need to listen to them and believe them. And there's going to be that constant wrestling match in your head. But the wrestling match between the forces that want you to hate how you look compared to the world. And then there's the wrestling of the words that your spouse has said to you or other people have said to you about how beautiful you are. So you listen to the words of those who love you and above all, listen to the words of Jesus who loves you so much that he died for you. You are loved because God loves you in Christ. Well, the Song of Songs is all about love. It's an expression of the love of a man and a woman for each other. It is extravagant praise. It is generous praise. It is abundant praise. And as I've been putting together these sermons, uh, I, I really do want to credit uh, the work of Barry Webb. I mentioned his name last week. He was one of my lecturers at Moore College when I was there. And he gave some sermons at Moore College Chapel many years ago, and I've listened to them and have found them enormously beneficial. And there's a chapter in a book that I mentioned last week uh, that called Five Festal Garments, where he's written on the Song of Songs, and he talks about these things like extravagant praise and things. And I think he's right on the money, and I think I really want to credit a lot of my thinking to what I've read from him. Because, you see, what he shows us is what is in this book of the Bible, and that is that words are powerful, they can change a person's life. And if you speak unkind words to another person, they can do great harm. You know that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They can't be true, can they? As we deal with each other, we've got to be loving in our words. Uh, I was really pleased many years ago to be uh, part of an organisation that had a no-bag-out rule. It was a Christian community. Said a no bag out rule. Uh, you see, in, in Aussie culture, we, we, we love each other by saying how much all these wrong things are about each other, you know? It's kind of, and, and in a sense, it's kind of like, yeah, that's okay, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, but it can sometimes get under our skin. Words are very powerful, and we need to be countercultural. And I think it's a good thing for us here in our church. We don't have to have a rule called no bag out. But we want to be really loving all the time in the way that we talk about each other, I think. We want this to be a very, very safe place where you can be who you are and have people go out of their way to praise each other and not to say, oh, you're just, you know, just trying to say nice things about them. Well, yes, I am. Because <laughs> that's what our community here in the Holy Spirit seeks to do to each other. Words can hurt, but words can also powerfully build each other up. Words can build each other up. You don't need to be married to a person to say nice things to them. Our relationship of either sex will be deepened as we grant them abundant praise with our lips. Speak nicely to each other. We need to be careful of people of the opposite sex maybe talking too much about their physical appearances. Oh, don't you look beautiful tonight? Might be a bad thing to say to somebody else's wife. But you, you, you know what I'm trying to sort of say here. You say it's like... You know, it is really lovely to have you with us here. You know, you can say sort of things. And we need to be wise in all of this because sex and love is powerful. We've heard all that, haven't we? But we in a community need to be ready 
to show words, uh, to say words of generous praise to each other. And I think it will make a major difference to our life here together. I don't see a problem with this in our church at all. I don't come back to say this is something we need to fix, but it's something we need to keep striving for, I think. And if you're married, then the challenge is to use this powerful tool of words to increase the intimacy between you and your spouse. Words of love might come really easily to your lips, or it might be really hard for you to say them. Very, very awkward. Uh, maybe Song of Songs can give you some inspiration. Maybe the Sean Sheep thing may not be the kind of thing that, but you know, you'll find something there, I think, I'm sure. See, another area that we praise is our praise of God. He's done marvellous things and we are forever in his debt. And therefore, it should be natural for us to abundantly praise God. I think it is, as we read the Psalms time and time again, we hear words of the Christian community, the community of God's people, telling God how much they're in love with him. Yes, we've got to be careful with songs that just sort of address God like Jesus is my boyfriend. You might have heard that kind of expression before. Yes, I get that. But there is also a point where we can show extravagant praise to our Lord. Uh, as I recall, as I was hearing Barry Webb in one of his sermons or in his writings, he, he, he said, we must not only talk about God in theological language, we should talk about him in heart language. And he says, if you can't talk to God saying, I love you and I adore you, then maybe there might be something wrong with your spiritual life if you can't just say those words to God. See, God has said to you and me, I love you. His son has wept for you and me. And I wonder if this is a challenge for us to say to him with our heart, I give you my life. I love you with all my heart. You know, someone once said that the greatest weakness of most humans is their hesitancy to tell others how much they love them while they're still alive. <laughs> the Song of Songs can be a motivation to us to praise each other abundantly. And the Song of Songs can also help us to know the honour of true sex, even as we live in this fallen world that longs to experience the forgiveness that Jesus has given us by his death on the cross for us. Let me pray. Our loving Father, as we have heard these words from your word, we are reminded of the honourable creation of sex and how sex is to be honourable. We've also spoken of things that have distorted sex in our world, and we ask, Heavenly Father, that if we have been involved in these sorts of things, that you might forgive us and change us and that we might know your forgiveness and the peace that passes all understanding. Would you please protect us as individuals and as a community as well as we seek to honour you and to honour our spouses and our future spouses. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we rec recognise these words, you would strengthen our relationships in our marriages, that you would help us in our relationship with you to be people who can honestly and with heartfelt words say, Lord, I love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.